Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Hi everyone, and welcome to this week's Square Mile of Murder. That was Taylor. And that was Kat. And if you couldn't guess, this week we're taking on the axe murderess of Massachusetts, Lizzie Borden. Which is fun for me, because I'm originally from Massachusetts, and I grew up hearing about this case. This is this is your hometown crazy case. Yeah, we did mine. Yeah, we did mine. The canoe man. So this is yours. This is like not quite as fun as that. (laughs) No, there's a lot more murders and a lot less canoe chat. Yes, there's less faked (laughs) faked deaths and more gruesome deaths. But yeah, it is. in case people haven't been able to tell, I really like the historical ones. I don't know why. Mm. I like old-timey shit. So Yeah, and we've got two this month because our yeah. Patreon bonus episode is uh, Victorian, old-timey right? Victorian. So, yeah. yeah. So, as you just heard, the, the very famous... Uh, I don't know if it's a nursery rhyme... Or I, I've heard that it's been used as a like a skipping rope, a jump rope rhyme. Um, but uh, I think I've I heard it described as like a schoolyard rhyme. Oh yeah, maybe that's so a good not, way to put it. Not like a nursery rhyme you teach your kids, but it's something that the kids sing to each other at school. Yeah, well, and it apparently I couldn't find who originally created it, but it has been attributed to. Mother Goose, um, known for other famous nursery rhymes. But yeah, this one's definitely darker in tone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so if you know that, you know that like all you need to know about the case, right? You know that Lizzie Borden was a troubled young girl who took out her aggressions on her father and mother with an axe. A lot. Real hard. There's a lot of information that never made its way into that little rhyme because wouldn't be quite as catchy, would it? <laughs> no, it'd um, be 15 pages long like this bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> the story of the axe murders of Andrew Jackson Borden and Abby Durfee Borden in 1892 are more complicated than they seem. And the closer you look at the case and the sensational press surrounding it at the time, things only become muddier. I mean, this is like an early example of like tabloid scandal. Yeah. Everyone going crazy, isn't it? This case and trial have been... It seems like we are always covering the, quote, crimes of the century. This has also been <laughs> called that. Um, and Along it's with been the compared... last crime of the century, we could. Yeah. <laughs> it's been compared to like the O.J. Simpson trial. So... Keep keep that in mind as we go here. So this week we're going to do our best to unwind all the threads of the Borden Axe murders, dispel the myths, and go through all the gory details. And they are gory, so you've been warned. If you're squeamish, I tried not to make it super gross, but it's Just hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't eat during this episode. Yeah, fair enough. 
Um, or chop any wood because that's or just leave your hatchets at home, folks. Um, Lizzie Andrew Borden, and that is Lizzie, not Elizabeth, uh, was born July nineteenth, eighteen sixty, in Fall River, Massachusetts. It's like a coastal mill town right on the Rhode Island border. Um, she was born to Sarah Anthony Morse and Andrew Jackson Borden. Despite the sort of generally accepted idea that she was a vengeful young girl at the time of the murders, Lizzie was actually 32 years old in 1892. Um, she had a sister, Emma, who was nine years older. The Borden family was well-off and well-respected in town. Andrew Borden was a self-made man and was a successful property developer. He directed several textile mills in the area, which is what that part of Massachusetts is famous for a sort of industrial revolution era textile mills. Um, and he also owned several commercial properties and was president of the union savings bank and a director of the Durfee safe deposit and trust company, which I don't know if that's any relation to Abby Durfee. I, I was just, just thinking that was that any relation to his, second wife because that's not really a common name is it Durfee? I didn't think so but I couldn't find anything to see if like sh it was her family like she was part of it but I th I mean in New England generally families everyone's related everyone's related families all sort of live in the same area and all have the same last names so it could just be an offshoot and yeah, so at the time of his death, Andrew Borden's estate was valued at around $500,000, which would be about $10 million today. Not Yay. too shabby. Um, uh, despite his wealth and success, though, uh, Mr. Borden had a reputation for being frugal, we'll call it. Um, though the family lived in a large house on 2nd Street in Fall River, most affluent members of the city lived in a neighborhood called the hill which as the name suggests was on a hill uh further away <laughs> from the industrial areas of the city <laughs> shocking i know um who, who would have guessed <laughs> uh and the borden house on second street lacked indoor plumbing and electricity which were starting to be installed in homes at the time um, except for a water closet that was installed in the basement but uh, Mr. Borden wasn't just penny pinching as some, you know, sort of make him out to be. Um, Andrew Borden was known to be unfailingly fair and upright in business matters. And he expected only honesty from everyone he dealt with, which could lead to some like disagreements from time to time. But it was generally accepted mm. that he was a good guy. And he liked honesty. I mean, expecting honesty is just asking for disappointment. <laughs> well, he look how it turned out for him. <laughs> so Sarah Borden died when Emma was 12 and Lizzie was not even three. Yeah. And um, because Lizzie was so young when her mother died, the only mother she ever really knew was her father's second wife, Abby, who he married in 1865. Uh, despite this, Emma always acted more as a mother to Lizzie than Abby. Emma had promised her mother that she would, quote, watch over baby Lizzie, unquote. Uh, a promise she kept for decades through 
through the murders and the trial that followed. I mean, that's dedication, sticking with your sibling through all that. Yeah, really. I mean, my sister's out on her own. <laughs> she starts pulling this shit. The, the Bowden girls grew up in a religious household and Lizzie was heavily involved in her local church, including teaching Sunday school. Uh, she was also the treasurer of the local Young Women's Christian Temperance Union, uh, which was an offshoot of the group that eventually successfully lobbied for prohibition in the United States. So you can imagine just how much fun they were. Yay. <laughs> Don't know about boredom. How about boring? Yeah. <laughs> boredom. Uh, Abby Borden, Lizzie and, who was Lizzie and Emma's stepmother, was a pleasant woman, if a bit unremarkable. She was 37 when she married Andrew Barden and is often described as a spinster. How can you be described as a spinster if you're married? Well, before she married him. I maybe should have worded that differently. But I just love, no. like, she was pleasant, but a bit unremarkable. <laughs> so sad. So sticking with the boring theme. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Those who knew her cared for her a great deal, and she was known to be kind and welcoming. Uh, she had a half-sister, Sarah Bertha Bertie Whitehead, 36 years her junior. And Mrs. Borden treated Bertie almost like her own daughter. In terms of personality, it's kind of hard to dissect fact from fiction. Um, and now what we've based this on um, is mostly Sarah Miller's fantastic book called The Borden Murders, which I will link in the show notes. I read it all. It was thrilling, fascinating. So rarely does a nonfiction book capture your imagination. Just to be fair, not saying that it's not all of those things. You were suffering from insomnia and quite possibly lost your marbles last week. So, you know. I mean, it's possible. <laughs> but, uh, but hey, that insomnia helped me finish it right quick. So that's <laughs> all that really matters, right? Um, it, as So a lot of this uh, episode is based on her book and... Um, some of the original like trial transcripts and newspaper articles and other various sources, which we'll put all in the show notes as per usual. Um, so Lizzie's main personality traits, according to all these sources, were a sort of quiet reserve and aloofness, along with a temper. Um, <laughs> now, some found these traits negative, Go figure. Others, though, saw Lizzie as fearlessly honest, frank, and straightforward. Um, but there were rumors. Rumors that Lizzie wasn't fond of her stepmother. And in fact, neither Emma nor Lizzie were particularly fond of Abby. Uh, though Lizzie was more publicly outspoken about her dislike, Emma struggled more with Abby in private. The girls didn't always share meals with Abby and Andrew Andrew. And neither one called Abby their mother. Emma called her Abby, and Lizzie usually referred to her as Mrs. Borden, which is a bit chilly. Um, um, now, in Lizzie's case, this 
uh, nomenclature, if you will, was a more recent development. So Abby and Lizzie's relationship began to deteriorate in 1887 when Abby convinced her husband to buy her sister Bertie's house when Bertie was struggling to pay for it. Um, Andrew Barden did just that, gave the deed of the house to his wife, Mrs. Barden. It was a very generous act that ultimately got Andrew Barden more than he bargained for. Ooh, intrigue. Uh, Lizzie and Emma didn't hear about the house purchase from their father or stepmother, but instead from neighbours and other people in the town. That's why they were These mad. sisters were... <laughs> yeah, they were outraged and furious, and I can, underst- I can understand yeah. that. Like, <laughs> Especially if like he's really like tight-fisted. Let's... Yeah. Spade a spade. Yeah. Call a spade a spade. He, he was very tight-fisted, but he'll buy his wife's half-sister a house. house. Yeah. yeah, I can see it. Um, so, yeah, they were outraged, furious, but why exactly they were so upset seems to have been kind of lost to history. We can only really speculate. Yeah. Uh, Lizzie told her stepmother, quote, what he did for her, for Abby's people, he ought to do for his own children. And the sisters seem to be worried by the idea that Abby could convince Andrew to make such a large purchase and perhaps feared Abby had more sway over their father than they did. Uh, So in an attempt to heal the rift, Mr. Borden gave Lizzie and Emma the deed to their grandfather's former home and the sisters collected rent from the house for the next five years until Mr. Borden purchased it back from them for $5,000, which is in eight. 1892 that's a lot of money yeah so 5,890 would be worth 140,873 dollars today so what's that in in pounds 120 pounds 100 or 120 pounds pounds. yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that exchange rate's a killer. <laughs> um, uh, like 120,000, 115,000. So, Father, Father Borden bought back the house. Yeah. Uh, a couple of weeks before his death. Uh, but this did little to ease the tension. And the whole town eventually became aware of the strange relationship between the Borden children and their parents. Yeah. Um, and who doesn't love a town rumor mill? I know, Small right? Town rumor mill. I mean, especially in a mill town, a rumor mill town. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. <gasps> See, oh, rumor mill town. Oh my god! I'm just picturing like uh, a factory, and the sign out front just says "rumor mill." <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there's like a town somewhere in like the middle of nowhere called Rumor? Oh, I'm sure. And they have a mill a mill and it's just called the rumor mill oh yes if if there's no town like that in this world i'll be very disappointed well i think it's now your mission to found such a town yeah go forth yeah found the rumor (laughs) start the rumor there you go (laughs) start the rumor mill oh 
and the rumors. We're not high, I promise. I know, yeah, this is just us. <laughs> this is what's worrying, is that we're, like, so sober. <sighs> I'm just high on caffeine and instant noodles. I'm not even on that. See? There you go. <laughs> okay. Um, Your turn. <laughs> yeah, so those rumors. Speak freely. <laughs> The room. I will not interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Okay. So, uh, I will just wave my shiny. Oh nose. my god! Got <laughs> 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 throw stuff at you. <laughs> I'll just wave my nice nails. Not look at that part of the screen. <laughs> um. <laughs> So the rumors of this family rift only grew after the morning of Thursday, August 4th, 1892. Um, why are you giggling? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> There's no way we're getting through two episodes today at this rate. <laughs> oh, okay. Here we go. Here we go. Back to the grizzly murder. Um, So the rumors of the family rift only grew after the morning of Thursday, August 4th, 1892. That morning, the Borden family sat down for breakfast. In attendance were Andrew Abbey, uh, the Borden's maid Bridget Maggie Sullivan, and John Morse, Lizzie and Emma's uncle, who had arrived the previous evening and stayed the night. Do you want to know why Bridget was called Maggie? I really do, because that's a very unusual name, but I didn't want to interrupt again. Well, I don't know if this is 100% true, because I only saw one source that mentioned it. But Mm -hmm. apparently, the Bordens had previously had another servant named Maggie, and Lizzie and Emma just couldn't be bothered to learn Bridget's name. Dude. Yeah. Not great. Mm-mm-mm. Um and and Bridget was about 25, 26 years old uh, and she's an Irish immigrant. So she would have been pretty close in age to to Lizzie actually um at the time of the murders. And it seems like they were quite friendly. So I don't know why the fuck <laughs> she didn't bother to le- learn her name, but these rich people, I mean. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, after breakfast, Mr. Borden chatted with John Morse um, for an hour in the sitting room, and then Morse left at around 8.45 a.m. with plans to return to the house at noon. Andrew left for his morning walk a little after 9 a.m., Uh, Lizzie testified that she did not eat breakfast with the family that morning because she'd been feeling ill for the last few days and didn't want to eat anything. Uh, Now, Emma was out of town in Fairhaven, about 15 miles east of Fall River, and she had been there for two weeks. Sometime between 9 and 10.30, Abby went upstairs to the guest room to change the sheets on the guest bed where Morris had slept the night before. Andrew returned to the house at around 10.30 and couldn't manage to open the front door with his key, so he pounded on the door until um, Bridget Sullivan let him in. Once inside, Andrew lay down for a nap on the sofa in the sitting room. 
So Bridget had gone upstairs at around 11 to her attic room to rest after a morning of cleaning the windows. Uh, but she wasn't upstairs long before she heard Lizzie scream and cry out, Come down quick! Uh, when Bridget got downstairs, she found Lizzie backed up against the screen door to the backyard, looking terrified. Lizzie told her to get Dr. Bowen, who lived across the street from the Bordens. She told Bridget, quote, I think father is hurt. You don't say. Yeah. Bridget ran across the road and rang violently at Dr. Bowen's door, only to be told he was out making house calls. Uh, Bridget then returned to Lizzie with news of the doctor and asked where Lizzie had been before finding her father, quote-unquote, hurt. Lizzie said, quote, I was out in the backyard and heard a groan and came in and the screen door was wide open, unquote. Uh, then Lizzie told Bridget to get her friend Alice Russell because she couldn't bear to be in the house alone. And Bridget left in search of Miss Russell. The Borden's next-door neighbour, Mrs Adelaide Churchill, saw Bridget hurrying off and called over the fence to Lizzie to see what was wrong. Lizzie said, quote, Oh, Mrs Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. Unquote. Ooh. Mm. Mrs. Churchill came over and began asking Lizzie questions about what happened. She asked where Mr. Borden was, which was in the sitting room. She asked where Lizzie had been when it happened. She was out in the barn to get some sinkers for her fishing pole. And she asked where Mrs. Borden was. Now, that Lizzie didn't know. But she said, quote, She had a note to go and see someone that was sick this morning, but I don't know. But they have killed her too. Father must have had an enemy, for we have all been sick, and we think the milk had been poisoned. Dr. Bowen is not at home, but I must have a doctor. So uh, Mrs. Churchill ran across the street to Hall's stable to get help. In the meantime, Bridget had made it to Alice Russell's and told her to come quickly to the Borden house. Though she hardly knew herself what had happened, she told Alice... I don't know but what Mr. Borden is dead. She then left and made her way back up 2nd Street when she ran into Dr. Bowen getting out of his carriage. She brought him back to the house where Lizzie told the doctor that she was worried her father had been stabbed or hurt. So we've got hurt, killed, dead, stabbed, and now we're back to hurt. <laughs> All the words. Just all meaning different things. Every description. Um, now, <laughs> this uh, surprised the doctor, who was expecting just to find the family sick. The day before, Mrs. Borden had come to his office frantic and worried that her family's bread had been poisoned. I thought it was the milk. Well, so did Lizzie. Uh, Dr. Bowen entered the sitting room and found Andrew Borden's body laying sideways on the sofa. The left side of his face was brutalized, hacked up to a pulp. His left eye had been cut in half. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. The violent nature of the scene led the doctor to check if anything else in the room had been disturbed, but he found nothing out of place. So it's a very precise job. Yeah. You're in there, you kill Mr. Borden and you leave. A, a tidy axe murder, if you will. Yeah, it's not like... A robbery gone wrong. No. 
And it was only after checking the room that Dr. Bowen actually checked to see if Mr. Borden was still alive. And his body was still warm, but he had no pulse. Um, Alice Russell arrived and tended to Lizzie with Mrs. Churchill and Bridget. Uh, the women were in the kitchen when Lizzie asked, Will somebody find Mrs. Borden? Nobody had seen Abby Borden. Bridget offered to go check if Mrs. Borden's sister, Bertie Whitehead, knew where Abby was, but Lizzie stopped her. Lizzie said she had heard Abby return home. But surely, if Mrs. Borden had come home, she would have come to investigate the commotion and Lizzie's screams. Um, I mean, you would have thought so, wouldn't you? One would imagine. Lizzie said to Mrs. Churchill... I don't know where Mrs. Borden is. I think she's out, but I wish she would look. So Bridget and Mrs. Churchill gathered their courage and went upstairs to look for Mrs. Borden, not knowing if a murderer may still be hiding somewhere in the house. And as they climbed the stairs, Mrs. Churchill looked through the spindles of the railing and saw into the guest room. On the floor, on the far side of the bed, she saw a person. And she refused to climb any higher. Wimp. <laughs> uh, now, Bridget, uh, not to be deterred, carried on and found Abby Borden lying face down on the carpet between the bed and the bureau in a large pool of drying blood. When she was found, her body was partially wedged under the bed and a yardstick lay beside her, possibly to help her get the bed sheets perfectly smooth. Um, wow. Yeah. This is that kind of household. <laughs> <laughs> that is... Nope. Uh, <laughs> her wounds made it clear that she was facing her killer for at least part of the attack. Um, uh, but it's not clear if she was already cornered between the bed and the bureau or if she had ended up there during the struggle. And she did struggle. Even after falling to the floor, she flailed and kicked until she couldn't anymore. Now, this might be a good time to touch on the famous crime scene photos in this case. And if you haven't seen the photos of Abby and Andrew Borden, they're easy to find. Though, not recommended if you are of a squeamish disposition. Yeah. But if you have seen them, uh, these photos don't tell the whole story. Both Abby and Andrew Borden's bodies had actually been moved before these photos had been taken. In Abby's case, the bed had been moved, the sheets stripped and searched, and then the bed had been remade again. The yardstick that was next to her body when she was found isn't in the photos at all, and her body was repositioned to make it seem that she had fallen straight forward with her arms pinned beneath her. For Andrew, the changes are more subtle, and it's easy to miss them because the gruesome sight of his face is rather distracting yeah and andrew borden's body had been had moved between its discovery and the photos being taken or more accurately the sofa had been moved because it was on small wheels very convenient yeah and it'd been pushed slightly sideways and it's impossible to know if these changes to the crime scene may have obscured any evidence so, back to the search. 
Mrs. Borden was found upstairs and Lizzie was overcome with emotion and Alice Russell helped move her from the warm kitchen to the dining room. There, Alice and Mrs. Churchill tried to keep Lizzie calm as police began to arrive at the house. And this is all happening within, like, a pretty short period of time. It's very Victorian melodrama. It is. It totally is. Because literally, like, the whole town is just showing up at the door because people are seeing people running around, you know, freaking out about stuff. Mm. Um, so the first officers to arrive were Officer George Allen, Inspector Patrick Doherty, and Deputy Sheriff Francis Wixon, um, Officer Michael Mullally, and Officer John Devine. They searched the barn, the yard, the cellar, and the attic, viewed the bodies, and of course, all wanted to ask Lizzie questions. Uh, the questions continued for days. And based on her answers from that first week of questioning, this is Lizzie's account of what happened that morning. So, according to Lizzie, she had some minor chores to do, including um, ironing her best handkerchiefs, uh, which is something I do as one does every Thursday. Uh, <laughs> she had laid out the handkerchiefs on a small ironing board in the dining room, but the irons weren't hot enough. So she read a magazine while they heated on the stove. She knew her father was napping in the sitting room and assumed Mrs. Borden was either upstairs or out running her errands. Uh, Bridget was, had finished washing windows and had gone up to her bedroom in the attic to have a nap before making dinner. Uh, Lizzie's irons still weren't hot enough. And so for some reason, she began thinking of her fishing pole. Uh, now, we're not quite sure why since she hadn't used it in about five years. <laughs> but she had been invited to a fishing excursion uh, the following Monday, and at that moment, she suddenly remembered her fishing pole didn't have any sinkers. Oh, yeah, that's what I always randomly think about while I'm waiting for the oven to heat up the iron. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a common, common concern. Um... So she decided to check in the barn for some small pieces of iron to use on her fishing line uh, as the, the irons continued to heat up. She went out into the yard through the screen door and left it unlatched behind her. On her way to the barn, she noticed some ripe pears on the ground underneath a tree and stopped to pick some up. She took her pears up to the loft in the barn and ate a few while looking out the window uh, of the, at the, the window at the West Peak of the building. Um, and now that window had a full view of the house, the side yard, and the screen door that she had just come out of. Um, she finished her pairs and crossed to the other side of the loft to look through a box of random things on the workbench. Uh, she'd spent roughly 20 minutes to a half an hour in the barn, and then she heard something. A noise, maybe. She wasn't sure, because the barn window was closed. It almost sounded like a scraping or maybe a groan. So she went back to the house and found the screen door wide open. And then, come quick, someone has killed father. Um, so <laughs> try to keep that series of events in mind as we go forward because Lizzie's story didn't remain consistent throughout the events of this case. 
So Lizzie had asked Dr. Bowen to send a telegram to her sister Emma. And then Lizzie had been ushered up to her room by Alice Russell and Mrs. Churchill. There she changed out of her dark blue work dress and into a pink and white striped dress. And this might seem strange, but it could be explained away as Lizzie wanting to look presentable with so many people coming in and out of the house. Do you really care about that if your dad and stepmom have just been axed to death? I mean, I don't think we would, but also different societal traditions. Also, fucking Massachusetts is (laughs) all about tradition and decorum. so. So what went wrong with you? That's why I had to leave. <laughs> uh, Lizzie remained in her room with the door locked until police came to question her. Uh, one of the cops listening to her story was Assistant Marshal Fleet, who at one point began to ask, quote, has your father or mother? And Lizzie interrupted, she is not my mother. She is my stepmother. My own mother is dead. And this remark, along with Lizzie's seemingly calm manner, immediately led Fleet to suspect Lizzie Borden of the murders. And at this point, the county medical examiner, Dr. William Dolan, had come to the house and began examining the bodies. He found that he couldn't initially tell how many cuts had been inflicted on Mr. Borden and said it was, quote, the most ghastly thing he had ever seen. I can I can understand yep, that. Yep, yep. Assuming like axe murders weren't particularly common no. in Massachusetts at this time. I don't think so. Not in this county anyway. <laughs> he ultimately sussed out that Andrew Borden had been hit in the head ten or eleven times and that these hits had opened a four inch by two and a half inch hole. On the side of his skull. Not small. No. Uh, Abby Borden had 18 blows to the back of her head, four on the left side and 14 on the right. So it's not the uh, 40 wax that the schoolyard rhyme would lead you to believe. No. But still plenty. Yeah. Um, So after the photographs have been taken... Dr. Dolan performed post-mortem exams right there in the house. Oh, as you do. Yeah. Yeah. So he did one autopsy in the sitting room or post-mortem exam is what they were called in this instance. We'll get to the autopsy in a minute. Oh. Uh Um, and, uh, one in the dining room for Mrs. Borden. Uh, now once those were complete, the bodies were just covered up and left in the dining room for the night. In a heat wave. In a heat wave. In In August. No. Yeah. Um, so... (laughs) While that was going on, uh, the police also brought over a local druggist, Eli Bentz. Um, and they brought him over to the house while they were questioning Lizzie. 
Spence, upon hearing about the murders, told police that he was sure that on the morning of August 3rd, a woman came into his shop whom he knew to be Miss Borden. This woman came in requesting 10 cents worth of prussic acid. She said she wanted it to put on the edges of a sealskin cape to keep moths away. Uh, but Ben's... I mean, that's uh, as reasonable an excuse as yeah. any. I mean, hey, what did Madeline Smith want it for? Keep the slugs out of her garden. <laughs> so... Oh, kill rats Kill rats, well. yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but Ben's didn't think it was such a good explanation and he told her he couldn't sell it to her without orders from a doctor so she left apparently the police brought eli bence to the borden house and had him stand in the doorway while in earshot of uh police questioning lizzie they wanted him to listen and see if uh he recognized her voice and he was sure that her voice matched the woman who had been in the shop why the fuck they did it that way? I don't know, but they did. Policeman. Yeah. And also, like, apparently half of the Fall River Police Department was just off on vacation at an amusement park on this day. So, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. So. Okay. So, uh, in the basement... The police were led to potential weapons by Bridget and she immediately pulled out two hatchets for the officers to examine. Uh, one was a rusty claw hatchet uh, with a rust stain and a smudge of something red along the handle that looked like it had been washed or wiped. And there are also two axes with ashes covering their handles. Uh, in the barn, police searched for any sign of someone hiding and then for any evidence. There, the city marshal spoke to Officer Harrington, one of the men who had spoken to Lizzie earlier. And Harrington told uh, Hillard, I don't like that girl. Under the circumstances, she does not act in a manner to suit me. It is strange to say the least. Yeah. I mean, we always condemn people who don't act the way we think they should. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's always a slippery slope when you're like, well, she's not acting the way I think she should. So she seems super guilty. Yeah, and yeah, and some people do put on a brave face and then completely break mm -hmm. down in private. Mm -hmm. So who knows? So, so this had all happened before th like 3 p.m. And Emma Borden arrived home on the 340 train from New Bedford. Um, not much is known about her reaction to the murders, only that she was, quote, overcome upon hearing the details. Rightfully so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is actually quite efficient police work to think that what the bodies were found at, what, about 11 o'clock? Uh, yeah. And... By the time Emma gets back on the train at 3.40, so... It's like four. Less than five yeah. hours. Like, the uh, autopsies have been done, police questioning's been done. They've found these axes and these hatchets. 
I mean, it's a lot more efficient than today's policing. It's true. Um, now, despite the shock, uh, Emma began making sure everything was in order and called Mr. Borden's lawyer, Mr. Andrew Jennings. So as things wound down for the night, Lizzie and Emma went to bed. Uh, John Morse had returned to the house. He slept upstairs in a third floor bedroom, not as some legends would tell you in the room where Mrs. Borden was killed. I think that's acceptable. Sorry to burst your bubble. (laughs) Um, And Alice Russell stayed with the Borden sisters that night, sleeping in Andrew and Abby's bedroom. Uh, The next day on Friday, uh, was relatively quiet. Uh, The undertaker arrived in the evening and began preparing the bodies for the funeral, which was scheduled for the next morning. Uh, Lizzie apparently didn't leave her room at all that day, and Dr. Bowen had to be called several times to help relieve her distress. First, he gave her a bromo-caffeine mixture, which apparently was sort of similar in strength to an aspirin. Um... (laughs) But what good is that going to do? I know. (laughs) But by midnight, he had prescribed something a little bit stronger. A low dose of morphine. Yeah, that's going to do it. Yeah. So while it was a quiet day inside the Borden house, outside was a different story. Uh, The newspapers were already working overtime, covering all aspects of the murders, true and false. Crowds gathered around the Borden house, looking for information about the murderer that undoubtedly still lurked among them. Uh, The papers published stories with gruesome headlines like horrible butchery and hacked to pieces in their home. They wrote that arrests were only likely after the funeral, implying that members of the family were suspected. Some were more straightforward and outright accused John Moss of the killings. Moss did seem to be the perfect suspect. John Vinicum Moss. What is that middle name? I don't know. (laughs) Had a long dark beard and bulging eyes. He had shown up at the house the afternoon before the murders by surprise and stayed in the room where Mrs. Borden was murdered. He traded horses, but his original career was as a butcher. Would he not have done a bit of a better job there? Well, one would think. <laughs> you know, like, could have, like, jointed the bodies and everything <laughs> and just gotten rid of them and nobody would know. That's true. Also, have you seen pictures of him? Terrifying. Yeah. he's that, Those eyes. He's not a good-looking man. Uh, the public was feverish in their suspicion. And when he emerged from the house to go to the post office, he had to be escorted there and back by police with their clubs drawn. Pretty much everyone in this case was kind of unfortunate looking, if you look at the pictures. I don't know if that's just (laughs) like a sign of the times, a sign of the quality of the photography at the time, but like Lizzie Borden. The inbreeding going on. (laughs) I mean, there's that, but we don't talk about that because it's not proper because we're in New England. Um, but like Lizzie Borden is fucking terrifying. Those eyes in those pictures are like, yeah, creepy. Um, anyway, (laughs) um, 
She can see into your soul. Yeah, she can. Still, to this very day. Mm-hmm. On Saturday morning, Lizzie came downstairs in a black silk dress and a dark bonnet adorned with small flowers. Uh, I mean, I dress like that every day, so. (laughs) Same. I've got my small flower bonnet on right now. Uh, The press would make much fuss over her funeral outfit, uh, stating that she was, quote, not in mourning. Um, Now, this is a bit complicated for us to grasp today because basically someone dies you put on something black and nobody really says anything as long as you don't wear like bright pink to the funeral funeral <laughs> damn i was on a roll there too as long as you don't wear bright pink to the funeral is a word i can say um you're pretty much good <laughs> But yeah, as long as you don't try and put the fun in funeral. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> With your bright pink outfit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but back then, especially in sort of like high society, there were very complicated rules for what kind of outfit was deemed socially acceptable for those who are grieving. Um, and different family members who had died earned different levels of mourning clothing. Traditionally, an orphan was expected to wear, quote, deep mourning in the form of black wool garments trimmed with crepe for a year following the funeral. So Lizzie's silk dress, though black, would not have been seen as acceptable mourning attire at the time. And Emma and Lizzie also didn't wear veils as they would have been expected to do. So (gasps) Scandalous. Scandal. She's not really in mourning. She's not really sad. She must be evil because she's wearing silk. <sighs> Go figure. Um, mm. So she was, she comes downstairs in her evil silk dress and she was led into the living room and up to the two open caskets there. And beside her father's casket, Lizzie finally shows some emotion and she cries. What followed was a small private ceremony inside the house. Outside, people crammed the entire block, hoping for a glimpse of the caskets, the mourners, and, of course, Lizzie Borden. The New York Times reported that Lizzie looked completely unstrung and was trembling while leaving the house on the arm of Undertaker Windward. Emma was more calm and seemed to barely notice the spectators. The mourners got in carriages and made a slow procession to the Oak Grove Cemetery. Emma and Lizzie stayed in their carriages as was expected of them, as the caskets were transferred to the Borden family plot. Only John Moss and the Reverend attended the graves for the reading of prayers. After two minutes, they were done and the carriages left the cemetery. Uh, So Mr and Mrs Borden's caskets were not lowered into their graves. Instead, there had been an order from the medical examiner to not bury the Bordens. He had left word that their caskets should be held in the cemetery's receiving vault. Their remains stayed in the vault for two weeks, and Lizzie and Emma had no idea they hadn't been buried. Yeah. So that's not weird or anything. Slightly sketchy. Yep. Um, so while the mourners were at the funeral, the police took the opportunity to thoroughly search the now-empty Borden house. 
They focused their search on the bedrooms, especially Emma and Lizzie's, but found nothing. Um, when the mourners returned, the police insisted on another search, which the sisters agreed to. Emma even said that she wanted, quote, as thorough an examination as possible of every part of the house, even offering to unlock boxes or doors that the police couldn't open. Um, they started in the attic. Nothing up there. Then down to the second floor, or first floor, if you're British, uh, <laughs> uh, where they painstakingly examined all of Lizzie and Emma's dresses, uh, about 18 or 19 in total, uh, that were in the sort of wardrobe closet thing across the landing from Lizzie's room. That's a lot of dresses for for that time. Yeah, it, it is. Um, and I think it's a, one of those things that their father was happy to try to sort of buy their love with. You know, fa nice mm. fancy dresses. Um, yeah. So they're looking at all these dresses and they search for any sign of blood because it would make sense that the murderer would have been covered in blood. Uh, but they found no trace. Um, they asked Lizzie to retrieve what she'd been wearing the morning of the murders so uh, they could keep it for evidence. And Lizzie pulled out a dark blue blouse, a patterned skirt, and which was also blue of some variety, um, and a white underskirt they searched for over three hours and still found nothing suspicious the police asked that the family stay inside for the next few days and when they asked if any of them were suspected the police told lizzie that yes she was a suspect and lizzie replied forthright as ever quote well i am ready to go at any time <laughs> she's not helping herself here no, but also if everyone's suspecting you of like killing your parents and you'd be like, yeah, right, so done with this bullshit, yeah, let's go. that's true. <laughs> so the next morning, which was Sunday, uh, Lizzie brought a skirt down to the stove. Emma asked what she was doing and Lizzie replied, I'm going to burn this old thing up. It's covered with paint. Uh, she held up the edge of the skirt, which was covered in green house paint. And Emma didn't seem to find anything strange about this and went back to washing the dishes. And Alice Russell witnessed the whole exchange. Yeah, she was still hanging out in the house, I guess. Uh, on the Monday morning, the police did yet another search. They chiseled bricks from the base of the chimney, took apart the wood piles, combed through the coal bins and boxes of ash. They searched the barn, took a foot of... A foot of boards off a lumber pile against the back fence, searched the old well, and examined the yard for any sign the grass had been disturbed. And once again, nothing. Not a thing. Um, but in the cellar, in the same box that Bridget Sullivan had initially led police to a few days before, Officer William Medley found something interesting. He found a small hatchet with its handle broken off close to the head. The break in the handle looked fresh, and the head was coated in what looked like ash but didn't match the dust that covered the rest of the tools in the box, almost as if someone had like deliberately covered it in ash to make it look, you know, 
disused. Mm. Um, yeah. And there also seemed to be dark spots on the blade, but Medley couldn't tell if they were rust or blood. He wrapped the hatchet up in paper and put it in his pocket before taking it to Marshall Hilliard's office. Upstairs in the parlor, Alice Russell was being interviewed by a private detective hired by the Borden's lawyer. Uh, Alice emerged from the parlor distressed and told Lizzie and Emma that she had lied to the detective. When asked if all the dresses that were there on the day of the murder were still in the house, she had answered yes, not mentioning the dress that Lizzie had burned. Lizzie, Emma and Alice all decided that Alice needed to set the record straight. So she did and made sure to tell the detective she was doing so at Lizzie and Emma's insistence. And at noon on Monday, a warrant was signed for the arrest of Lizzie Borden. So much for <laughs> trying to set the record straight. Uh, um, so for a few days, the police waited. Uh, Marshall Hilliard knew that he couldn't just arrest Lizzie. He also needed enough evidence to hold her in custody. But so far, he didn't have any direct evidence linking Lizzie Borden to the murder of her parents. What were the police to do? Well, they decided to convene an inquest which was actually a pretty strange choice to make because inquests are usually held in order to determine if a suspicious death is the result of foul play, which like clearly axes hacking foul. Yeah. I mean, and uh, what's important to know is that inquests are performed in complete secrecy in an attempt to keep pre-trial press coverage from influencing potential jurors. But despite the secrecy, Fall River caught on to developments in the case, and as the police questioned Bridget Sullivan, crowds once again began to gather around the Borden house. And at 1.40pm, Marshall Hilliard and Inspector Doherty arrived at the house with a subpoena for Lizzie to appear as a witness at the inquest. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. She emerged and press accounts noted that she had, quote, aged terribly in the last few days. Poor woman. <laughs> I mean, she's been accused of, like, double murder. Everyone's getting axed to death. She's got dead bodies in her living room. Of course she's aged a few years in a few days. Yeah. Uh, she went with the officers and arrived at the police station where hundreds of people were waiting to catch a glimpse of her. And inside the second floor courtroom, Lizzie was joined by Judge Josiah Blaisdell, District Attorney Knowlton, Marshall Hilliard, Medical Examiner Dolan, State Detective Seaver, and the District Attorney's stenographer, Miss Annie White. Not forgetting the butcher, the baker, the <laughs> candlestick maker. Yeah, literally. Uh, the defense table was empty because lawyer Jennings' petition to present during the questioning had been denied. Uh, nobody in the courtroom told Lizzie that she was not obligated to testify to anything that might incriminate her. And it's possible that Jennings had gone over what was about to happen with Lizzie before she took the stand. But nobody mentioned the warrant for her arrest. That's a bit underhand. A little bit. 
And we'll put a link to uh, Lizzie's testimony in the show notes and on our website if you want to go read the whole thing or part of it yourself because um, it's quite interesting to read. But we'll try to give kind of a summary of what she said. Um, Lizzie's testimony was basically a mess. <laughs> Her answers were evasive, combative, and contradictory. She couldn't even tell Knowlton how old her stepmother was. Um, her testimony is peppered with not that I know ofs, I can't, I cannot locate the time exactly's, uh, and I think, I am not sure, but I thinks. Uh, Knowlton questioned Lizzie about the morning of the murders and asked how long her ironing had taken. She replied that she hadn't finished because the irons weren't hot enough. He asked if they had been hot enough, how long it should have taken. She guessed around like 20 minutes. So he asked it again. How long did she end up spending on the ironing? She replied, I don't know, sir. Uh, and this response essentially left her without an account of her time while Abby Borden was being killed. Uh, so questioning continued. She waffled back and forth about whether she was in the kitchen or the dining room when her father returned or whether she was upstairs in her room. And at one point, she said she was coming down the front stairs when he was coming in the door. But they went back and forth about this for like, it seems like an age. Like there's like 50 <laughs> questions. And he's like, so you were in the kitchen? She's like, yeah. He's like, so you were upstairs? She's like, yeah, but you just said you were in the kitchen. Oh, maybe I was. So nobody knew what the fuck was going on. Mm. But she ultimately settled on she thought she was downstairs when her father returned. So Lizzie didn't know it at the time, but this directly contradicted what Bridget Sullivan had told the inquest just hours before. Bridget had said that she left, that she let... Mr. Borden in because his key hadn't unlocked the door, which had three locks. The locks were usually unbolted every morning, but they hadn't been unlocked and Bridget struggled with them. She said she cursed and heard Lizzie laugh at her cursing upstairs. So if Lizzie had been upstairs before Mr. Borden returned, she would have been upstairs at the same time Mrs. Borden had been attacked. And if Lizzie hadn't been the attacker, she may have been up there with a murderer lurking about. And now we come to the part where I've put the floor plan in the script. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just looking at it right now. <laughs> so uh, we sh we're going to talk a little bit here about the sort of odd layout that the Borden house on 92 2nd Street had. Um, and we'll put this photo of the floor plan online because it's going to be a bit hard to describe with just words, um, but I'm going to try. Yeah, I'm confused already. I know. <laughs> um, so the house had originally been a two-family home with separate living quarters on each floor. Um, and Andrew Borden had then converted it into a one-family house. But because of the home's original layout many of the upstairs rooms sort of opened weirdly into one another without any connecting hallways. So you come in the front door and there's like a front entry and up the stairs, there's a landing 
off that landing, there are doors to three doors, one leading into Lizzie's room, one leading to the guest room, and one leading into that like clothes cupboard wardrobe thing above the stairwell. So Lizzie's room was right off the top of the stairs, and it connected to Emma's bedroom directly, um, which was just to the left of Lizzie's room and also behind the guest room. And Lizzie's room also had doors leading into the guest room and the Borden's room. And the only way to get into the Borden's room from the front stairs was through Lizzie's room. But by all accounts, this door stayed locked and Lizzie's bed had been placed in front of it. And instead, Mr. and Mrs. Borden used the back stairwell to access their room and another small bedroom that Abby used as a dressing room. I don't think that made any fucking sense. <laughs> but basically, from the stairwell... It, it made sense to me, but I'm looking at the yeah. plan. So if you look at the plan, it makes sense. Yeah. So basically, from the, the, the landing in the stairwell, you could potentially see into Lizzie's room and the guest room. It would have been very difficult for Lizzie to be in her room upstairs and not run into someone else up there. So if she'd been upstairs, she should have seen any axe-wielding murderers, you know, lurking around, and potentially could have seen Abby's body on the guest room floor, much as Mrs. Churchill had done during the search of the house. So when Knowlton called out the inconsistencies in her testimony, Lizzie said, quote, I don't know what I have said. I have answered so many questions and I am so confused I don't know one thing from another. Her confession could have been caused by morphine prescribed by Dr. Bowen. And upon learning that Lizzie was a suspect, the doctor had doubled her dose to 16 milligrams. That's going to help. Mm. She's on all these drugs. She's not used to them. She also doesn't have a lawyer present. And she hasn't been told not to incriminate herself. And she also doesn't know that there's a warrant out for her arrest just hanging out in the sheriff's pocket. Mm. Um, so she continued to contradict herself and sometimes even refused to answer questions that might have helped clear her name. She took the stand again the next day on August 10th. And she testified that she had spoken to her father in the sitting room and asked if he had wanted the window open. And she said that she helped him remove his boots and put on his slippers. Even though crime scene photos clearly show Andrew Borden was still wearing his boots when he was killed. <laughs> when asked about discovering her father's body, Lizzie said she had opened the door and then rushed back, only seeing the blood covering Mr. Borden. Only then did her composure start to crumble and she had to cover her face with her hand for a few minutes before she could continue. On August 11th, the inquest continued for a third and final day. And in pre preparation for testimony, medical examiner Dolan and Dr. Frank Draper, who was the medical examiner for Suffolk County, met at Oak Grove Cemetery to perform official autopsies on Abby and Andrew Borden. The second autopsies. The bodies had been left in the stone receiving vault for five days at that point and they had not been embalmed so 
and it was a particularly hot August that year. Yep. So you can imagine what kind of state they were in. Uh, the autopsies closely examined and noted the injuries to Mr. and Mrs. Borden's heads. From the examination, they determined that the four hits to Andrew's temple had crushed his skull and caused his death. Uh, Mrs. Borden had a broad injury to the back of her head, shaped like the number seven, and had taken 14 blows to the right side of her skull, which destroyed the bone behind her right ear. And at the end of the exam, Dr. Dolan did something very strange, and not at all, in keeping with normal procedure. He decapitated the Bordens and took their severed heads with him when he left. Yeah. Isn't that like abuse of a corpse? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's like... Or like denying someone a proper burial. <laughs> Could be charged for like mutilating a body after death. Also, I have a number seven shaped scar on my forehead. Oh, well, you and Abby. Which? Just twins. Yeah. Yeah. So he's off stealing heads. And we're going back to the courtroom. Um, Yay! <laughs> uh, so back at the inquest, other people finally got their turn on the stand. And while nobody's testimony was quite as chaotic as Lizzie's had been, everyone's recollections were a bit muddy. Um, in all, Mrs. Churchill, Alice Russell, and Dr. Bowen had plenty of their own I am only guessing and I can't recall because I was so shocked moments. Emma also answered questions, but she wasn't feeling very well uh, the day of her testimony. So Knowlton let her step down early. Um, John Morse answered everything that was asked of him clearly and confidently. And he had an airtight alibi because he had been seen visiting relatives at four way Bossett street. Um, I like it. <laughs> Way Bossett. Uh, and he was there from 9.40 to 11.20 that morning. Uh, so, despite his bulging eyes, airtight alibi. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Still, like, terrifying. Yes. And clearly taught his niece how to stare into people's souls. <laughs> exactly. It's a family trait. Yeah. Um, the drugstore clerk, Eli Bentz, also testified about Lizzie's supposed trip to get prussic acid. Um, some friends and neighbors testified that there had been tension between the Borden parents and daughters. Ultimately, Bridget and Lizzie's testimony proved to be the most important to the case. And though Lizzie never said anything directly to point to her guilt, she also didn't clearly lay out her innocence. At 7pm that night, so that's August 11th, I have lost track of the days, uh, Marshall Hilliard and State Detective Seaver came into the room where Lizzie and Emma were in the courthouse and served her with a warrant for her arrest. Didn't say anything, but her face turned pale, her eyes filled with tears. But there were no more dramatics beyond that. No handcuffs, no parading her through a crowd... She was taken to the matron's apartment instead of a cell. Uh, Emma left, crying as Lizzie was searched and booked and taken away by matron Russell to her quarters. There, finally, almost alone, Lizzie broke down, crying so hard she made herself sick and Dr. Bowen had to be called for. 
Again. Probably with more morphine in his pocket. Yeah. She was arraigned the next morning. She looked straight ahead with a glazed over expression. No surprise considering, you know, she was totally wired on morphine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, some took this as a cool and calm demeanor in the face of such serious charges. While others said she seemed, quote, more like one who did not fully understand her position than with the composure of courage. Hmm. Mm. The court called to order the case of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts versus Lizzie A. Borden for murder. Now, Lawyer Jennings, which I'm just going to take a moment here. This just started happening when I was writing this. Everyone is referred to as like their job title. So it's like druggist Eli Bentz and Undertaker Winward and Lawyer Jennings. And I just started writing Lawyer Jennings and Marshall, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And so I apologize if that sounds super weird throughout this, but it just happened. So on a scale of weird things in this case, I don't think that's that <laughs> that's weird. That's true, considering. <laughs> um, so Lawyer Jennings. <laughs> Um, <laughs> entered a request that Judge Judge Blaisdell be removed and disqualified from presiding over the arraignment. Now, Jennings was ultimately trying to get the judge taken out of the next step in the legal process, the preliminary hearing, where it would be determined if the accusations were deemed legitimate enough to be tried before the superior court. Now, in these hearings, the judge had to decide based on evidence presented if the defendant was, quote, probably guilty or that there was enough probable cause to send the case to a higher court. Um, Jennings argued that because Blaisdell had heard so much testimony about Lizzie from the pr- uh, for the previous three days and that the testimony had led to her arrest, it would be impossible for him to hear any new evidence without being prejudiced against her. I think that's quite a fair point. It really me. is. Like, he, he'd been sitting in the inquest for the whole time and then she gets arrested so yeah um so yeah um he argued that instead of using an inquest to find out who the most likely suspect may have been the police had used it to extract information from lizzie without arresting her he said it had been a secret trial masquerading as an inquest think he's right yeah there's not a lot you can really argue against that nope but even still his plea was denied Boo. Yeah. um so the court clerk had lizzie stand and said this is a complaint charging you with homicide what say you are you guilty or not guilty her response not guilty um Lizzie was held without bail in the county jail in Taunton, which is about eight miles away from Fall River, um, until the court reconvened on August 24th for the preliminary hearing. During that time, public opinion began to sway. The same people who had cried for Lizzie's arrest a week before began to wonder if she would get a fair trial after hearing about Jennings' motion. And the public was hungry for facts about the case. As the story spread throughout New England and beyond, newspaper accounts became more and more sensational, and the truth of Lizzie Borden began to give way to the legend of Lizzie Borden. Whether or not Judge Blaisdell was biased 
Once the preliminary hearing was done, he had found Lizzie probably guilty and sent the case to a grand jury. The grand jury met in November and initially they refused to read to her an indictment. It was only after hearing more testimony from Alice Russell about Lizzie's dress burning. This tipped the scales and the grand jury indicted Lizzie for the murders and sent the case to trial. That old dress burning gets you every time. Oh, yes. I mean, that is one of the things that's always brought up in this case is that she burnt a dress. The trial began on June 5th, 1893 in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and was tried before a panel of three judges. Lizzie's defense team included lawyer Jennings, as well as George Robinson, who was a former governor of Massachusetts. It is also important to point out that Robinson had actually appointed one of the judges on the panel during his time as governor. Bit of bias, maybe? Possibly. One might say. Uh, the, yeah. The prosecution consisted of District Attorney Knowlton and Thomas Moody. And the case was argued in front of a jury of 12 men. Uh, now, remember back to that lovely little factoid about medical examiner Dolan deciding to remove the Borden skulls and bring them home with him. Well, and forgive me here. No, I've just read ahead in the script. No. No. They reared their ugly heads, as it were, in the prosecution's opening statements at trial. I'm quite proud of that one. You shouldn't be. (laughs) I think I should be. (laughs) Oh, that's bad. That reaction alone tells me I should be. That is, that is a bad dad. <laughs> I mean, I am dressed as a dad right now. Like, it is my natural state. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, Thomas Moody threw Lizzie's blue dress from the day of the murder onto the prosecution table, sort of with a flourish during his opening speech. And in the process, the dress sort of fluttered a bit of tissue paper that had been covering a bag holding the Borden's cleaned skulls that they just brought to court with them, like like pets or something. I don't know. Um, I have so many questions. I know, right? Like, I could see it for, like, being, like, showing pictures of the skulls as, like, evidence or something. But to actually to take them Bring out- them in. Of the burial vault and bring them in. Yeah, I know. But yeah, so seeing her parents' skulls, as one might imagine, made Lizzie faint. I'm not bloody surprised. (laughs) Um, And it sent a wave of excitement throughout the courthouse. And things are off to a rollicking start. So uh, the testimony in the trial was much the same as all the testimony that had come before. Bridget Sullivan was the prosecution's star witness and her account of the day had not wavered and she spoke confidently on the stand. She told the court... I mean, if you work for like a rich family and they can't even be bothered to get your name right, you might be really committed to (laughs) 
to taking him down a peg or two. It's, she had also tried to leave town multiple times after the murders, but the police were like, no, you can't do that. She's like, I want to get out of here. And they were like, you can't do that. <laughs> um, so uh, Bridget told the court that Lizzie was the only person she had seen in the home before the murders. Uh, she also spoke about the stomach bug that the Bordens had had the night before they were killed and that Mrs. Borden was concerned that they had been poisoned. Dr. Bowen testified about finding the bodies and that Lizzie had told him she had been in the barn looking for sinkers. On cross-examination by the defence, Bowen admitted that the morphine he prescribed Lizzie may have had a hand in her confused and contradictory testimony. Uh, Alice Russell brought her testimony about the day of the murder and the dress burning into court. She also testified about a visit Lizzie had made to her house the evening before the murders where Lizzie had told her, quote, I feel afraid something is going to happen. Uh, maybe she's just psychic. <laughs> yeah. uh, Lizzie told her that, quote, she wanted to sleep with one eye open half the time for fear somebody might burn the house down or hurt her father because he was so discourteous to people. Ooh. Yeah. Intrigue. Yeah. So, but like, by all accounts, he wasn't really discourteous. He was just kind of blunt. So, mm. I don't know. Um... Uh, a newspaper article described the prosecution's case as, quote, a pigeon shooting match in which District Attorney Moody kept flinging up the birds and defying his antagonist to hit them, while the ex-governor, Defense Attorney Robinson, constantly fired and often, but by no means always, wounded or brought them down. Right. Can I tell you a story? So I used to work with uh, a lass who's about I think she's a year younger than mm. us and she thought that like, you know what clay pigeon shooting yeah. is you know it's it's clay discs yeah. it's not a pigeon yeah. she thought that pigeons were dipped in clay and then thrown up into the sky oh no <laughs> yes that's incorrect <laughs> and also disturbing that is horrifying yes. <laughs> Oh, no. Well, now I won't get that <laughs> image out of my head all day. <laughs> also, I feel like that would be a really hard process. <laughs> like, to then, to do that, to go through all that trouble, and then just shoot him and break him, like, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, have you seen the pigeons in Glasgow? They are, like shady as fuck Don't, how could you possibly bold. round up all those pigeons dip them in clay and then fire them into the sky no they would fight back you'd lose an arm or at least a finger oh yeah mm. <laughs> um <laughs> just picturing it now probably an eye <laughs> um and you know that account was pretty much correct. The defense largely used the state's witnesses to build their own case uh, during cross-examinations. They drilled into witnesses' contradictions and the holes in the prosecution's case. They pointed out that the handle of the alleged murder weapon, the hatchet head, had never been found. 
They also pointed out uh, that according to the state's timeline of the murders, there would have been only eight to 13 minutes between Andrew Borden's murder and Lizzie's call to Bridget upstairs, leaving her very little time to wash what would have been a whole lot of blood off of her clothes and body and the murder weapon and then to hide that murder weapon. Yeah, and let's remember that clothing in the 1890s. Complicated. Took like a whole day just to put on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, The defense also managed to get Lizzie's inquest testimony excluded from the trial by arguing, as much as Jennings had at the arraignment, that Lizzie had been involuntarily forced to testify without an attorney present, violating her Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Another witness that didn't make it into court was Eli Bence. His story about Lizzie buying prussic acid was excluded and the jury never heard it. Emma Borden was the defence's most anticipated witness and she testified that Lizzie and her father were very close and despite some tensions over Bertie Whitehead's house, Lizzie and Abby Borden were always cordial and polite with one another. Um... When summing up the defense's case, Jennings said, quote, There is not one particle of direct evidence in this case from the beginning to end against Lizzie A. Borden. There is not a spot of blood. There is not a weapon that they have connected with her in any way, shape, or fashion. Uh, Robinson followed up by arguing the state hadn't met its burden of proving Lizzie's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Um... So after that, District Attorney Knowlton summed up the prosecution's case, and then something out of the ordinary happened, because of course it did. Um, because uh, <laughs> it's just in keeping with this entire case. It really is. Uh, <laughs> one of the judges on the panel, Justice Dewey, gave the jury instructions. Now that part <laughs> was normal. How he did it, however, wasn't so normal. Um, newspaper accounts wrote that the judge was more or less acting as a member of the defense team when he instructed the jury on, quote, the folly of depending upon circumstantial evidence alone. He also told them to take into account Lizzie's exceptional Christian character. Apparently, his instructions lasted for like an hour as well. So I'm sure the entire jury was like, can we just get on with it, please? Um, Mm. uh, we don't know if the jury was swayed one way or another by Justice Dewey's remarks. What we do know is that after an hour and a half of deliberations, the jury returned with their verdict of not guilty. Lizzie was released and returned with Emma to 92 Second Street. They inherited both Abby Borden and Andrew Borden's estates. Because Abby had died first, her estate momentarily passed to Andrew Borden before his own murder but they chose to distribute Abby's money and property to her family including the deed to Bertie Whitehead's house which they transferred to Bertie for one dollar they also settled another matter they reunited Andrew and Abby's skulls with their bodies thank god and though the details aren't perfectly clear when or how Uh, Radar scans of the Borden family plot show that Emma and Lizzie likely buried the skulls just above Andrew and Abby's feet. Not quite. That is some weirdly messed up ghosts going to be walking around Fall River. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm not quite sure why they chose the feet, but apparently they did. Uh, Lizzie never managed to escape the public attention caused by her trial, which she remained in Fall River for the rest of her life. In September 1893, Emma and Lizzie moved from 2nd Street up to The Hill, the fancy part of town into a large Queen Anne-style house at 7 French Street, which Lizzie dubbed Maplecroft. She began using the name Elizabeth Elizabeth A. Borden in an attempt to distance herself from the crime. Um, Emma remained by her sister's side for years, just as she had as a child after their mother's death and through the trial. But in June of 1905, she suddenly left Maplecroft. And by all accounts, she never spoke to Lizzie again. Um, the reason isn't entirely clear and the only thing she ever said publicly was quote i did not go until conditions became absolutely unbearable it's possible that emma didn't like lizzie's associations with a group of actors and theater people um which was seen as a very unsavory profession at the time uh emma only ever gave one interview with the press after she moved out she spoke with the boston post in 1913 after renewed interest in the case uh, following the 20th anniversary of the verdict. And she said, quote, I did my duty at the time of the trial, and I am still going to do it in defending my sister, even though circumstances have separated us. Uh, and while walking the reporter to the door, she said almost to herself, yes, a jury declared Lizzie to be innocent, but an unkind world has unrelentingly persecuted her. I am still the little mother, and though we must live as strangers, I will defend baby Lizzie against merciless tongues. Elizabeth lived a fiercely private life at Maplecroft, but wasn't a lonely, evil old woman, as the press would have you believe. She loved animals and had a Boston Bull Terrier, a yard full of birdhouses, and a collection of squirrels that were so tame they would climb onto her shoulders. She was friendly with her neighbours and doted on her chauffeur's son and daughter, who called her Auntie Borden. She sent weekly deliveries of groceries to pensioners and lent out use of her car for anyone who needed it. And she bought hundreds of books for the city's poor over the years. Yeah, because books are what poor people need, not a roof over their heads and food. I mean, no one ever said she was perfect. <laughs> Lizzie Borden died on June 1st, uh, 1927 at Maplecroft. She was 66 years old. Um, at her own request, she was buried at her father's feet. Just gonna leave that there. Just gonna blow past that. <sighs> yeah. Um, uh, the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden have never been solved. Um, although Lizzie apparently had her own suspicions about who committed the crimes, she never revealed them, saying only, quote, when I know how easy it is to be accused, it ill befits me to accuse in my turn, since I don't know. And that is the case of the Borden Axe murders and the trial of Lizzie Borden. Wow. Okay. Yep. yep. Um, so who do you think did it? <laughs> I don't fucking know. Do you think she did it? I go back and forth because it seems like there's no other option. 
but also I think there would be more evidence. Like there would have been blood somewhere. Yeah, that that's the thing. I'm like, well, it all happened in like such a short period of time and there was the maid, you know, just knocking about. So if someone else did it, she would have seen. Or, yeah. You know, it's almost certain that she would have seen. But then because of all the like doors and everything in the house upstairs, you could easily sneak from room to room without being seen. But like you say, if it had been someone in the house, like if it had been Lizzie, there would be blood somewhere. Somewhere. And like the house was searched, the barn was searched, the yard they, was searched. And yeah, not just by police. Like, out of like the chimney yeah. and everything like that. So it's not like it was like a curse. Hiding. Brief. And like the the house was also almost immediately surrounded by reporters and onlookers. And so like someone mm. would have seen something. Um yeah, yeah. But if you knew the house well enough, you could have easily snuck around and then run out the back door. Yeah, probably. But you'd I have know. to be you'd have to be well known to know that it was a very weird setup. Yeah, you'd have to know that like you couldn't get through from the front of the house to the back of the house without switching stairwells upstairs mm-hmm. and like I just don't know. No, I I don't know. I don't know what I, I think. I want to know. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think about Lizzie Borden. Uh, did you know the rhyme? Uh, do you think she did it? You know, let us know. There are links in our show notes and on our website to Facebook and Instagram. So come and talk to us about this about any of the other yeah. cases we've covered about any cases you'd like us to cover yeah and uh, also if you want to read more into the case there are the list of links and resources and stuff in the show notes and the floor plan oh yeah go take a look at the floor plan because check that out because it, it gets less confusing yeah <laughs> if you it look definitely at it. does uh, and if you if you like what you hear and want to hear even more, check out our Patreon, where we put up bonus minisodes, full-length episodes, uh, and, you know, if you got a few minutes, we would love it if you could rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice, because that helps us reach even more ears and builds this little community just a little bit more. Yeah, like uh, the more the merrier, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so thanks for listening. Yeah, we will see you next week. Yep. Bye. Bye.